0: Andy is correct. It's Mark 12. I called an audible last night, and I'm taking you to uh, Mark 12. So your bulletin will be correct for next week, but the Lord had other plans for this morning. Hey, while you're turning there, let me just give some commentary on what we just sang. When Andy first told me about that song, I listened to it the first time, and my first thought was, uh, it's not that catchy. and The melody, the tune, it's just kind of normal. But the more I listened to it, the more I was captivated by what was being sung. And it, and it was one of those songs that you have to point people to. Not only believers, but unbelievers. So to sing something like that is amazing for us to do. We just proclaimed and reminded ourselves of the gospel by singing that song, which is monumental, which is what we're here to do every Sunday. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this. Father God, we seek your presence and your provision now. This is your word. We want to hear in spirit and truth as surely you speak in spirit and truth. You know what we need before we ask you. But we ask you because... You are where all good things come from. You are the source of our life and light. You are our hope and our help. And you are the only one who can teach us these things about your kingdom and about knowing you and loving you. So maybe in this hour, we would hope that you would remind us or that you would communicate to us for the first time what it is to love you, what it is to live with others in light of that, Lord, that this would... conform us all into the image of your Son, who does all this perfectly, and would remind us why you have created us to exist here in this place and in this time. So we look to you for everything, and surely we look to you to speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. (coughs) I'm taking us to Mark 12 because I was reminded these past few weeks um, what our greatest needs are. Not only personally, you as an individual, what your greatest need is, but but in that, after that, what the greatest need is for others. Specifically, we have Babies on the brain, don't we? And uh, what does it mean to love them? And so I was reminded a couple weeks ago, and I always cherished this passage. But in Deuteronomy six, you have the Shema, right? You have the great um, confession of the faith from Scripture that. <clears throat> The Jews would recite at the beginning and the end of each day, oftentimes even in the middle of each day, and certainly that we are not to forget. It's still true. And in that Shema, or, or, or quickly following Deuteronomy 6:4, you have the rest of that chapter, that passage which will begin to speak about how we are to communicate what we know about God, what we hope of in Him. We're supposed to communicate that to our families, to our children. When we rise up, when we lie down, when we walk by the way, we are to love them by loving God. So the the main reminder, the main thrust of Deuteronomy 6, if you want to take it sequentially, which I believe you should, is that if we are going to love these babies and love these families and love the next generation well, we're going to communicate to them who God is, and we're only going to be able to do that if the first thing happens. And the first thing is that you love God. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but who here forgets to do that first? I do. I forget that the most important part or the very beginning of the day or if anything good is to follow, then my devotion, my love for God must come first. It's not selfish. How do you have anything to give if you don't have anything to give? What is there that's overflowing if nothing's being poured in? And what I'm describing here is a communication, a relationship with God that we'll go back to the Sermon on the Mount next week to investigate as we pray to Him, as we recognize Him in prayer. But, I'm asking if, if our relationship exists in a devoted, consistent way. You know, Andy and I were talking a couple of days ago about baseball. Andy's a baseball player. Or used to be. Yeah. And he said, you know, the difference between those in single A, triple A, double A, and those in the pros is consistency. That they all have the same skills. The pitchers can all throw high 90s, maybe 100. Everybody can hit a home run, 350, 450. They can all do those things. But who can do them every single time they go out to play? And that's just a small reminder of what God is calling for or using the scriptures as they've been preserved, using the church, using the Brotherhood, using Scripture memorization to do is to remind us every day to be consistent in our relationship with Him as surely He's consistent in His relationship with us. The difference between your Christian life now at whatever age you are and your Christian life 5, 10, 15 years down the road is the consistency of your relationship with God. We grow by abiding with Him. We know by abiding with Him. We mature by abiding with Him. So if I've been called and tasked to lead this church, then I must remind you of the very same things that I have to be reminded of is the very most important thing that you do, especially as you're tied to us as a member, is love God. And that everything, really, the, the underlying reason for everything we do, especially as we gather on Sunday mornings or as we go to Sunday school or as you make your way back on Sunday night or as you find a midweek Bible study with the other brothers and sisters, the, the underlying reason for that is to hopefully enhance, remind, encourage, fan the flame of your love for God, and then everything else will move out of that. The reason, one of the reasons that Jesus pours his love into our hearts, not only just at the time of salvation, but every day since then, one of the main reasons he does that is so that we would overflow with rivers of what he calls living water. And shouldn't people want to drink from that? The reason that he has left the church in this world, where Satan has some sort of dominion to rule here, the reason we're left here is so that our love for God and his love for us would infect and offer a contrast, and present life to a dead and dying world. Otherwise, he'd just take us home, and that would be it. But we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling by remembering first what has taken place in salvation and living in the hope of what is yet to take place but is guaranteed to take place. And that everything in between is an unending flow of God's love for us. And unfortunately, we can't communicate that everything that happens from us is an unflowing river of love towards him. But then again, he stands in contrast with us. By offering that consistency of his loving kindness and patience and love and grace and goodness. So that we are presented with what it means to keep covenant with Him. And He allows us to grow in that. Until we're perfected in that. And He provides for us gifts and brothers and sisters to encourage us in that way. So let me say for a moment the the past couple of weeks, those... Gentlemen that came from the Agros uh, program uh, did, did you a great service. They spoke truth to you. And it doesn't matter how they did it or in what style they did it. What matters is that they did it. And as I, as I watched, I got to be like one of you. And and got to be encouraged and got to be reminded and got to be helped and brought back to why I am who I am and why I exist as a child of God and then what matters according to that. So in Mark 12, you, you have a you have something that we see in the Sermon on the Mount. You have a misunderstanding of the law, of the Word of God, and you have Jesus correcting that and bringing out the true essence of the law like He does uh, at great length in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we have some similar things happening here. And as you look at those two things, you're you kind of realize that really that's what Jesus is doing all along, right? He's making visible the invisible nature of God. He is is the fulfillment, the embodiment of what the law of God is or what it looks like to live in perfect harmony and even submission to the Father. And to live in a um, perfect communication with other people. That's what Jesus does. And so in Mark 12, he has these few confrontations about <coughs> the law. He has a, um, gives us a parable about the tenants and how, really, uh, Israel, you have killed all those that God has sent to you. And kind of foreshadows here, finally, he sent his son in hopes that you'd listen to him about what he's going to tell you about who God is and what it actually looks like to fulfill the law. But they killed him. And then he has the discussion about taxes, right? And the Messiah is supposed to take Israel out of Roman control and be this great political figure and, and, and make uh, Jerusalem uh, the, the house of God again and, and rule the world. And he's, no. Is Caesar's image on that coin? Well... Give it to him. And what he's not saying there is, you know, what image is on you? Where's your devotion? And then the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, try and test Jesus by saying, hey, you know, what about this woman who ends up being married to like seven brothers? If there's a resurrection, then whose wife does she belong to in that case? And again, Jesus is like, you're quite wrong. There is no marriage in heaven. They're like the angels. There's an intimacy that you guys know nothing about that is yet to come. And then we get to our passage this morning in the Great Commandment. So there's a scribe that comes up to Jesus, and this scribe would be like some sort of a Pharisaical scholar, and he seems to be genuine. And I say that because the context of the whole passage points out that he agrees with Jesus about what the heart of the law is. And so I believe that he asked him a genuine question. He says, "Which commandment is the most important of all?" So this when Jesus goes back to the Shemal, right? Jesus answered, verse twenty nine: "The most important is, 'Hear, O Israel.'" The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So if you'd like to, go back to Deuteronomy 6 with me. And remember the context of Deuteronomy is they are finally ending their time in the wilderness, those 40 years, and Moses is called to prepare them (coughs) to enter the promised land. And they're to enter the promised land with some reminders, both of where they came from and how they got to where they are. And not only that, but now how they are to exist in that place that God has brought them. And that would be synonymous with God taking us from death to life, setting us free from the chains of sin and death and bringing us into his glorious kingdom and while we are existing in that kingdom, there is a certain way that we are to exist. But he tells them in 6 4 this very same thing that Jesus quoted Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're monotheistic, we recognize only one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and there shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then he goes on to talk about how when you get into the land, you are to remember that you didn't build this that you didn't fill your cisterns, that you didn't plant these gardens, but that God brought you out of slavery and he brought you here and he gave you these things and it's him you shall fear and it's him you shall serve and there is no other God to devote yourself to. But notice the first thing is first there in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God and then in verse 7 or verse 6, this shall be on your heart; these things that he has said, and then verse seven, you shall teach them. This reminds me of Ezra in Ezra seven ten. Ezra is described as somebody who set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and then to teach it. We need your family needs your own heart needs your devotion to God, and that only comes from. If you have been captivated by His love. If it's been poured into your heart so you understand it, so that you've been transformed by it, so that your desires are now for Him, and through Him, and to Him. That, like Jesus tells us in the parables, this becomes your greatest treasure, that you would sell everything and, and invest wholly in the kingdom, in Him. Then, in fact, what we'll get to at the end of Matthew 6 is that you would not even worry about anything else, including your own life, but that you would seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, which now belongs to you, if you're His. But the word that's used in that commandment is love. Now, you can't command somebody to love somebody, can you? But if, if you know the reality of what has taken place in your heart, if Israel understands the reality of what has taken place for them, there is no other option but to love Him. And to not love the Lord your God places you in condemnation. The thing that God takes most serious is when he presents to you his absolute love for his enemy by the presentation of his son on a cross under his wrath and you reject it. That's the most offensive thing to him. That's why Jesus says it'll be better for Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum, because you were presented with the Savior in the flesh, the very love of God made manifest among you, and you said no. To not love God is to hate God. There is no middle. There is no being indifferent it's it's black and white here. We're going to love him or we're going to hate him. We're going to remain his enemies or we're going to submit as his children under his grace and mercy. So don't let yourself be fooled. You're not just like okay with Christianity but not really invested. You exist as an enemy in that moment. To know God is to love God. I was communicating this morning. I believe in irresistible grace. If He makes known to you His glory and goodness and grace and mercy, then the scales will fall from your eyes like Paul on the Damascus Road, and you will love Him. He is that way. That's who He is. There is... No other option if you see Him for who He is than to love Him. While wow, there's the opportunity. So, our efforts are to present to you what He presents to us. The, the, vis, the vision, the communication, the truth about Him. Not so that you'll be puffed up in knowledge because then you gain nothing but that you would be drawn in to love him more. And that's what we have to always remember. That the goal is that you would see him to love him more. And that's the only way. You know, on the... Roaring Glory is not too active right now, but on the front page of our website is uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. What? How? Right? Like how are we going to love somebody that we haven't seen, that we don't know? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We haven't seen him, but through the prophetic word, through his word preserved, through the apostles' word explaining him, we can know exactly who He is. And we can see through faith that, of course, the God that the Bible explains and unveils to us is a God that is worth of supreme love and devotion. If this is telling us who He is, why would we not love Him? Well, I can answer that as well. Because we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And we hate him. No one seeks him. No one seeks to understand. We all run from him and desire our own way. But when you see him, you love him. And I tell people this all the time. And I've told you a thousand times. I'm going to tell you a thousand times more. If... The goal of Satan is to keep unbelievers from seeing the glory of his gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Then what do you think will transform you and your love for him in seeing the glory of his gospel in the face of Jesus Christ? The object of our faith and in seeing that first Peter tells us that not only will we love him but will obtain the outcome of that faith, the salvation of our souls, which Paul tells us also in Romans 8, is a guaranteed glorification, which means that we will live with Him forever in the flesh. We do not present a faith or a hope that is mystical and only spiritual. We are looking to put flesh and bone on our faith. That's how you continue in the faith. As you're looking forward to what is coming. The, greater, the greatest reality. I was talking about the second coming yesterday with one of my sons, and he said, I want him to come, but I'd like to get to drive first. I was like, hey, I get that. There's a lot of things I'd still like to do. But we have to remember that none of that compares with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in our flesh, in our temporary state of being, we have things that sound really good that we'd like to do and experience. And that's fine. But we have to remember that that has to submit to seeing Him. that that nothing else, no other thought can compare to that. That looking forward to that will keep you in the faith. And that God has provided all that we need to do that. So we are teaching you the Bible, the Bible, and the Bible. We are not trying to take you anywhere else but here. And if I try and make this word more palatable to to a a world that is obsessed with moving images and, and luxury and the glory of the flesh, then you'll miss it. We have to present this unadulterated, pure, in its own form, only saying what God has said. And he says at the end of the book, (laughs) Beware that you don't add or take away from this. This is it. So, then, if this is what presents to us the glory of God, which Satan is trying to blind unbelievers from seeing, because if they see it, they'll be saved, right? Absolutely. So, that means... As we know that, because we just told you, then opening this and looking here for Jesus is the way to love God. Sometimes people will say, well, yes, but we have to do things for God. And James will say, yeah, your faith without works is dead. We're, we're talking sequentially here. If You're, you're not going to move or be moved by his love unless you know it every day. Try it. You probably have if you're like me. Go a day or two or three or four or a week or a month without his word and see how much movement there is for God in your life. You'll become pretty self-focused pretty fast. But if you're looking at him, then everything else gets put in perspective. What's that C.S. Lewis quote? It's something about how Jesus is like the sun, but through Jesus he sees everything else or something like that. I just butchered that really bad. But anyways, go look that up. Um, So we're looking at Jesus. He is the object. He's the outcome of our faith. He is it. Like, do you understand when we get to heaven, I can't tell you all it's going to be there. I can't tell you what all he's going to present to you or give to you. or. How, but I do know, according to Revelation, that the glory of heaven is Jesus. So the, the greatest part of heaven or why it is existing as that place, is because of Him. So we're reading the Bible to look at Him, to know Him, to hear from Him, to grow in our knowledge of Him, not so that we can win Bible quizzes or prove to our our, uh, uh, unbelieving friends and family um, that this is true, but we have to start at that very simple place, that childlike faith of, I want to know my Father. Who are you? And, verse 30, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your mind and your strength. The second commandment, most important, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So why it's most important for everybody around you, everybody that you encounter, everybody in your family, the next generation, that you first love God is because of this. 1 John 4. Starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Why? How? How? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, and listen to this, knows God. Anyone who does not know God, because anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins or the payment or the one which the wrath of God was placed upon that satisfied that wrath. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then you can skip to verse 19. We love... Because he first loved us. So there is a sequential thought, right? Understand, live in, communicate with the God that loves you and enjoy his love and love him. And now we can move on to the second half of the Ten Commandments, to the second greatest commandment, to love other people. Like I said at the beginning, if nothing's being poured in, nothing's going to overflow. So how can I love you in the true sense of the word because God defined it? How do I do that if I don't know where it comes from or what it is? And he says it, this this commandment is stated in an interesting way. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a problem if you hate yourself. If God, now I'm not trying to build self-esteem here, but if if God made you, there's a purpose and a plan. There's There's a written number of days. There's an image that you bear. There is a value upon yourself that you probably never really understand. And the value is not in how great you are. The value is in how God knows you and still loves you. It's undeserved, unmerited favor. In other words, it's saying, yeah, I made you. I know everything about you. I know everything you've done. I know everything you will do. I know a word before it hits your lips. I I know all your days because I wrote them in my book. And you're left saying, that's bad news because I'm wicked and disgusting and all this sort of stuff. And God's telling us he's not looking for us to be him. He's looking for us to be objects of his love that communicate that his Love is so transcendent and deeper than what we think of as love. By nature, and this doesn't even happen a lot of the times, we love that which is of our flesh. That's either things that appeal to what we like in human form or things that come from our flesh like our children. And that doesn't even happen a lot of the times. We, we love selfishly to get something for ourselves to fulfill some supposed need or desire of our own. And if that person can provide that, then I can let them in to give me that. And when they're not giving me the other needs I have, then I don't need them. Now, does God not display that he loves selflessly? Did Jesus not come to serve and to save the lost? Did he not come in an unconditional manner that despite that you can offer him nothing, he gives you everything? And what does that do to people that understand that? It transforms them. It creates a community or a royal priesthood of these holy believers Who who build one another up, who are not about taking, but are about giving and deriving joy from what they can do for you. Why does God go to the links that He goes to to display His love to the universe? That's who he is. That's the kind of love that he has. So if we're going to love our neighbor as ourselves, we're going to have to remember who we are and that we don't seek harm for ourselves. Even in our own flesh, we usually seek to get good things for ourselves. Well, then place somebody else in front of you, and then you'll begin down that path. And that's a, that's a simple statement there. That's like, a, this, this will happen, right? There's no further extrapolation on this. It's just love your neighbor as yourself. It's that golden rule that we always teach our kids and that used to be taught in school, right? Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. It's, it's a reminder that what, what do you Hope would happen from others toward you. Okay, go do that to someone else. And it goes even further. Because as we remember the love of God, as we exist there first, then we truly know what it means to love other people. Loving is giving. Loving is selfless because God defines Love. Love is for the building up of someone else. Love is is for the betterment of someone else. Love is for the protection of someone else. Love is for the good of someone else. Love is 1 Corinthians 13. Patient and kind. Does not take a record of wrongs. Now where would that come from? The love of God who separates our sins as far as the east is from the west who doesn't remember them anymore. But maintains covenant and loving-kindness from generation to generation. So, the Ten Commandments are a foreshadow or a forerunner to the fulfillment of the greatest commandments of the law. You have the first four that communicate our relationship to God and the last six that communicate our relationship to one another. The first four come first. That's a simple statement, but think about it. And then you get to those six. The only way that a society, a culture, and a world that is plagued with sin can live in a way that is fruitful for everybody is that the gospel exists, the love of God exists in the hearts of people. You can't legislate a society or a culture... That is beneficial for everybody. Or is completely protective and for the good of everybody. But you can create one, if you're God, through the giving of a new heart and the writing of your law on that heart. And I think what Israel is missing, especially as Jesus has to remind these religious people in Mark 12, is that that's what God is talking about. He says... These commandments have to be on your heart. And then you get to Jeremiah 31, 31, and he says, I'm going to write it on their hearts in the New Covenant. We're not going to have these external tablets of stone. I'm going to put it on a heart, a living, beating heart that I made and that I put within that person. And then we understand what it looks like to love. One of the the greatest things Um, realizations I had after conversion was I never loved anybody in my life until I knew what God's love was. Not a day. It was completely self-serving from the moment I was born. And Jesus says, "There's no other commandment greater than these." You understand that the Jews had 613 laws that they had to remember. And how's the scribe responding? He says, "You're right, teacher. You've truly said that He is one, and there is no other besides Him. And to love Him with all your heart, and with all understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices." And Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. But notice what he said to him. He didn't say, You've got it. You're part of the kingdom. Welcome. He said, You're not far, but you're still not there. Why? Well, follow the thought. In verses 35 through 37, Jesus questions the scribes by asking them if the Christ is the son of David. And then he quotes Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm. And then he says in verse 37, David calls him Lord. So how is he his son? That scribe is not far from the kingdom of heaven, but he's not there yet because he doesn't know who Jesus is. I just read in 1 John 4 that the love of God is made manifest in this, the Son coming into the world. So we can talk all day long about loving God and loving our neighbor, and we can get really vague about that you have to understand that the object of our faith is Jesus. If you don't get that, then you're not in the kingdom. If you you reject Jesus, then you're not in the kingdom. But if you see Jesus, as the greatest movement or all of God's love, if you see Him hanging in a place because of God's love for you, if you hear Him communicating to you the love of God, if you read about Him Exercising benevolent kindness and miracles because he's the love of God, then you are part of the kingdom. You understand what the love of God is. God exists. Jesus exists from all eternity in a loving relationship. And they move into their own creation in that way. So in John 17, Jesus, loving the Father, submits and obeys Him and glorifies Him, and God, loving the Son, glorifies Him, even through the cross. And as we understand that love, then we understand what that love is supposed to do for one another. And so we come, we gather, we do this thing called church, we have members meetings, we have deacons' meetings, we have times of study, we do everything that we do, or we should, because we first love God, and therefore, I love you. So we must remember the two great commandments, because they drive everything. And my encouragement just as we leave our time here now is that that's what you investigate and that's what you study is the love of God. And watch what happens. I won't have, we won't have to create certain ministries. or it, It'll happen. Respond to him in love and then we'll sing together.